Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Until just a few days ago, Afghanistan was America's forgotten war. Now everyone remembers it, especially those who have never been there or have no real connection to the place. But some people have been deeply emotionally, physically connected to the country, and for them these days have been unbearable. Sarah Chase is one of them. Sarah and I worked for the NPR Foreign Desk around the same time. Her life and career took a different turn in 2001. She covered the aftermath of the overthrow of the Taliban then, arriving in Afghanistan via the Pakistan border. She ended up in Kandahar, southwest of Kabul, and decided to stay. She left journalism, learned Pashto, and over the next decade did a number of things in Kandahar, including setting up an NGO that helped women in the area earn money, making soap from local products. And she eventually became an advisor to Admiral Mike Mullen during his tenure as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She has maintained contact with friends in Afghanistan, the ones who are still alive, throughout the years. I called Sarah at her home in America to get her view of the history of the U.S.'s adventure there and began by asking her if she was surprised by the sudden collapse of the Afghan government. When I lived in Kandahar, that I started asking my friends, how is this going to fall apart? Is it going to collapse suddenly or is it going to kind of disaggregate? And we never had a good answer for that. The question wasn't, is this going to fall apart? It was, it was, is it going to be sudden or is it going to go more slowly? I can't say that I predicted the instantaneous collapse um, that we witnessed, but I'm not all that surprised. I understood the mechanism of the initial negotiated arrival of the Taliban in 1994. I understood the mechanism of, ha of the negotiated departure of the Taliban in 2001. I talked to people who had been part of both of those stories. And that's how these things tend to go. And Michael, let me, let me just bring something else up. We Americans have been experiencing some, some apparently abrupt social movements. Me Too, the uprising in favor of racial justice in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And, and many of us have said, wow, you know, these things get, you know, just burst out of nowhere. How did this happen? And then as we look at them more closely, we see that they have been quite a long time in the quiet making. And I think this collapse is exactly the same. And I think the quiet making is in part the corruption of the Afghan government and the US role enabling and reinforcing that corruption. I think it's been the determined and very patient strategic policy of the Pakistani government. Um, and I also think it's been a series of negotiations that I am now positive have been going on in the past weeks and months between a number of people who have been proxies for the Pakistani government and the Taliban and certain Afghan government officials and certain military and civilian commanders, particularly in the north and west of the country. Well, let me, let me stop you right there because, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me is this all happened 
I was working on a series of articles to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, 20 years. And yet, when I look at things or hear you talking about Karzai, for example, you th and then you, you talk about him negotiating with the Taliban in 1994, that's a long time. I mean, most of the fighters... In, in the Taliban today, you get the sense, weren't even born on 9-11. But yet you're talking about people who've been interacting with each other for more than a quarter of a century. Oh, well more than a quarter of a century. You're exactly right. And, and I guess what distresses me is the United States, even 20 years later, seems just blissfully ignorant of this history, at least U.S. government officials. Sarah, how is that possible? Beats the hell out of me, Michael. And it's to the point, you know, I recently reread Thomas Kuhn's seminal book about scientific revolution. And he's got a lot to say about the deafness of people who are adherents of a certain intellectual paradigm, right? A certain story or narrative about the world, how the world works. They become deaf to any, you know, kind of suggestion that the world may not work that way until the anomalies pile up so high and until a, an attractive alternative is sort of put forward. And that really struck me, you know, because that was the sensation that I have had over, you know, about a 15-year period when I felt like I was saying the same things over and over and over and over again. And those things were twofold. Number one, they were the corruption of the Afghan government and our role in enabling and reinforcing it and the role of the Pakistani military intelligence agency. But, and it just never stuck, you know, not to mention then the specific role of President Hamid Karzai. When I wrote about that back in 2006, in my book, Punishment of Virtue, um, I was frightened by what I was writing. I thought it was so explosive that it would, you know, like really shake things up. And, and, and I was nervous about, you know, putting it out there. You know, one radio interviewer picked it up, uh, an inner city black daily talk show host. He got it. He was the only person in Philadelphia. And so, I mean, I think we're into the realm of human psychology here. It's, we've heard of willful blindness. I think this is, you know, willful deafness. When you were in Kandahar, we were in touch, and it was around the time that the U.S. was suggesting that they might have to talk to the Taliban, and you were really angry about that. Don't talk to them. You can't talk to them. Do you remember those days? Yes, of course. Yes. And I can't remember whether it was... A, a military, Somebody from the Allied military forces had come down to Kandahar and was saying, well, I'm going to have to talk to these people, and you were upset about it, or what the specifics were. Can you remember? I don't remember the specifics of that particular moment, and I think it was a little later. I think it would have been around 2008 was when this started to arise. 
And the reason I was opposed to this is because it was being pursued as though the Taliban actually represented any of the Afghan population. The idea was being pursued in the ignorance that, in fact, negotiating with the Taliban was negotiating with our so-called ally, the Pakistani ISI, by proxy, right? So it just was blowing my mind that we were seeing you know, the Pakistani government as our ally in the fight against the Taliban, and then we were about to basically, uh, you know, usher, which we have now done, their proxy back into power in Afghanistan. It, it didn't make any sense. And frankly, you know, based on my, um, you know, living there and speaking Pashto and not having any guards in front of my door and hanging out with, you know, with everyone, it was clear to me that there were two forces that were detested by ordinary Afghans, and they were the Taliban and the Afghan government. You know, here we are supposedly trying to help the Afghan population collectively determine its future, right? And yet there were no genuine representatives of the Afghan people who were going to be present in this, you know, so-called negotiation. It was going to be us and Taliban who were detested by the Afghan people and still are. I mean, I would like to just have people think back to the scenes in December of 2001 when the Taliban regime collapsed. I mean, I drove into Kandahar maybe a day or two later. And I mean, there weren't yet scenes of joy. The city was quiet. Um, people were waiting to see what exactly was going on. It was also Ramadan. A few days later came the holiday marking the end of that month-long fast, right? I mean, Michael, you should have seen it. The kites in the air, the games, the horse races, the, you know, beautiful clothing that people, brand new clothing that people put on. You didn't see people rushing for the airport. So I just think that this, the whole U.S. appreciation of what's been going on for 20 years has been erroneous. You'd think over 20 years, though, if the Afghan people, and you, li you lived among them for a very long time, hate both their government and the Taliban. I mean, that's, a, that's genuinely rock and hard place. Was there no possibility of building up from the ground over 20 years a third force with a sense of legitimacy. You had Pakistan backing the Taliban who were dragging people out of their house at night and murdering them. You had the United States government backing the Afghan government and enough mistakes and enough deliberately misdirected night raids to allow Afghan officials to intimidate people by saying, watch it, I can call down a raid against you. And people believed it. What, what honestly do we expect people to do in that kind of situation? Life was really cheap. What it was that made you stop, get off the journalism train, which is not a, an unwise decision, if you ask me, and, and you've, You've led a more intense and interesting and useful life. 
Not sure. <laughs> Not sure, but that's kind of you. <laughs> what made you stop in Kandahar, and what, what was the work that, that you set up there? There were two reasons. I was trained as a historian, and I was sure that 9-11 marked a significant turning point in world history, and I wanted to be there. In retrospect, I'm not sure I was quite right. I'm actually not sure that 9-11 represented the type of break with, you know, even the last century that I had kind of thought it was at the time. Um, but that was how I felt about it. I felt that the plate tectonics of history were moving. And I also had a background in Islam. That was my you know, that's what I had um, specialized in. And where else would you want to be, right? And, and it was my feeling that from the crisis, an opportunity could, be, could arise for these two civilizations that seem to be so at each other's throats to recognize that, you know, they're both on the planet <laughs> and they both have a lot to learn from and teach each other. And, you know, idealistically, I thought I could help be part of that bridge. So that was the sentiment. I felt there was a certain irresponsibility in the role of a reporter. I had come to feel that I was making a living off of other people's drama. And I never had to, you know, answer for how that drama turned out. And I felt like I owed it to these people to try. Um, and I tried with everything I had. I sat with tribal elders and helped them, you know, prepare to go in a delegation up to Kabul to talk to President Karzai. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I really felt like part of the community. Now, I was obviously in a privileged position because as a foreign female, you are a third gender, which is a wonderful gender because you're the only person who gets to interact with both genders of Afghans. Secondly, people didn't really know who I was and they assumed that I had some kind of power, some kind of access. Um, and so, you know, they took me seriously and they gave me the time of day. And when I told them I wasn't gonna pay a bribe, they actually didn't, force me to pay one or throw me in jail. But my friendships were real. Many of those people are now dead, but that's the world we were living in. And I found a way to continue working for the success, for what I thought was the joint success of the Afghan people and the American mission, until I would say, really the election of 2009, in which President Karzai just blatantly stuffed ballot boxes and, you know, altered the counts. And, and the U.S. really didn't handle it very well. You know, while you were talking just then, I was thinking both of Graham Greene, the quiet American, wandering around Saigon in the late 1950s after the old European power has been cleaned out and before the disaster of of our, our adventure in Vietnam was really underway. But then I'm also thinking of, you know, just standard Washington bureaucracy. You don't put your neck out. 
you know, you try and guess who's got the juice, get on their coattails, and go for the ride. And if you've made the wrong choice, you try to get off in time and, and find the next person. And, and there is that element of it. But there's also, I mean, and this brings us to the corruption stuff, there's so much bloody money is available at both ends. You get government contractors charging inflated prices what to put blast walls around Bagram just to, to come up with something. And they get kickbacks from local hires, local hire, the chiefs of local hires. I mean, the corruption just flows. And there's so many billions sloshing through, a lot of it in hard currency. It's not you know, electronically transferred. I mean, how does anything get done when there's so many easy ways to get rich? Michael, I would ask you to reflect on the United States. How many billions of dollars slosh around the, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex? How many former executives of military contractors have served in civilian posts in the De Department of Defense? How many generals have left, have retired to then sit on the boards of giant military contracting companies? Let's look at Treasury and the superhighway connecting Goldman Sachs or BlackRock to the Treasury Department and the regulatory industries and back. And these so-called experts are the ones who delivered us, you know, the meltdown of 2008, the ensuing housing crisis. I mean, I'm not trying to say the United States is Afghanistan. I'm just saying that, you know, when you discover that Kabul Bank was a Ponzi scheme, then you wonder who was it who was in charge of setting up Kabul Bank? It was American financial services industry experts. Simultaneously, they were incubating the crash of 2008. And, you know, military contractors at Bagram? Yeah. And uh, the guy who, for years, had, so far as I know, the monopoly contract on providing fuel to Bagram and much of the, you know, security services that, that protected convoys driving around the country? Well, he was, until two days ago, the Speaker of Parliament. So when you have a government that is essentially an interwoven network of mega-rich mega business leaders, government officials, and frankly, enough out-and-out -out criminals to provide those types of services, disaster ensues. And my most recent book is called On Corruption in America and what is at stake. And what I did for that book was to take the template that I had developed looking at Afghanistan and subsequently looking at Nigeria and Uzbekistan and Arab Spring countries and Nepal and Honduras um, and other Central American countries and applying it to the United States. And to my horror, I found what I expected to find that we looked a lot more like those countries than we had any idea that we did. And so that's why I come back around to self-delusion. We've been deluding ourselves for 20 years about Afghanistan. What else are we deluding ourselves about? And so finally, 
what is your emotion? You know, you got off the train and you lived there and you, you gave a chunk of your life to this country and you lost friends. As this is unfolding, how do you feel? It's a hard question to answer. Um, as I said, I knew it was going this way. At least, I mean, I really knew, at least back in 2010. And I consciously engaged in a process of extracting my heart. And I did that partly having read the book, A Bright Shining Lie, about the Vietnam War. And that book is kind of built around the biography of a man named John Paul Van, who had gotten involved in the war from the early days with much the same integrity and idealism, I want to say, as, as I would like to think I got involved in Afghanistan with. John Paul Van died in a helicopter crash in 1975. And I read that book and I said, if I'm not careful, that's where I'm headed. And so I worked pretty hard to cauterize that. Preparing yourself for something to happen, you know, it's like the death of a parent. You prepare yourself, but when it happens, you're completely unprepared emotionally. So do you feel anger? Well, you, you've cauterized your heart, but probably not entirely. Um, anger, a bit heartsick? Completely heartsick and quite angry and ashamed. I mean, indelibly ashamed. Why would you feel ashamed? I tried to convince, I, uh, I you know, put my all into persuading Afghans that this was going to be good for them. Don't I bear some responsibility? Well, Sarah, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Michael. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Sarah Chase for her time and her honesty. And when it comes to her last rhetorical question, I don't think she should take the responsibility all onto herself. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, to hear more. And while you're there, make a donation, please, to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.